All right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, sir. Everybody give a hand clap for my assistant, Andrew, this morning. He brought his pops a, a water bottle, which is going to be important for me today, I have a feeling. A little bit under the weather today, um, but I told the prayer team this morning um, that I took Dayquil, but what's really making the difference is Miss Doris prayed for me. So I'm just saying, I'm feeling good. I feel the presence of God, and I believe he wants to speak to us in a mighty and powerful way. Who's with me? All right, few of you, few of you, that's good, awesome. All right, so just one more quick reminder. If you are visiting with us here for the first time, please fill out one of those Connect cards. I promise not to stalk you just a little bit, right? But we just wanna have a chance to get to know you and, and get you connected. And so please take some time to fill out that card. Also, um, if you, uh, you should have received a go deep guide on your way in. If not, uh, go ahead and lift up your hand because we want everybody to have a go deep guide. We got a few in the back that we missed. Um, so keep your hand up. But what we use these for is two, two, twofold. You're gonna follow along and you will see uh, as you flip through, you'll see my main points. Um, but also, on the front of the page, there's space on the front page for you to just take notes. So how many of you know it's important to jot down what you feel the Spirit of God telling to you? Yes. Right? Because I don't know about you, I'm forgetful. I forget why I walked into the pantry. <laughs> and then I have to walk back out again and go back in again to see if I remember. Am I alone? All right. We've got a few head shaking. I'm going to take that as agreement, right? And so sometimes it's important for us to write down, it's always important for us to write down what God is speaking to us so that we don't forget. Because when he's speaking, you should probably remember, right? So follow along, take some notes. We also encourage you to use these as a part of your daily prayer and devotion time. Uh, because there's questions uh, that dive a little deeper into what we're going to be talking about today. And um, it can be an incredible resource for you. This is also um, our discussion guide that we use in our life groups. Which, by the way, if you're not in a life group, get in one. And I even, I feel, I feel led to say this right now. We, we just launched a new Rooted group last week. Can we make some noise for Rooted? Um, I just want to say, even though you missed the first week, we had someone who missed it anyway because she was sick. If you still want to join the group, talk to me today. We'll get you registered because this is going to be a life-changing thing that you don't want to miss out on. So I just feel like there was a reason for me to share that. So perhaps someone in here will want to register for that today. All righty. Something else I want to talk to you about real quick before we dive in today's message. Today marks the beginning, or I think, I think on the calendar we officially start tomorrow morning, of a 21-day prayer and fasting season for our church. Now, we did this last year for the first time since I was pastor, um, and God did some incredible things with it. And like last year, this year we have a reading plan that coincides with this season of prayer and fasting. And so um, we want you to go ahead, you can get on the app, and you can sign up for that reading plan. Uh, there's multiple ways to fast, and I'll try to talk about that a little bit each week. Uh, you can fast straight meals and just do nothing but water, um, something that I'm uh, praying about doing, and maybe some of you just to tell me, yes, Pastor Joe, that's God, is trying to go the whole three weeks without any sugar. 
Somebody tell me I, I heard them wrong. Somebody tell me, oh, dang it. All right, right? Or, and, and, then, and then something else that I'm feeling is maybe to go three whole weeks without social media. Oh my gosh. So basically sugar for your body and sugar for your brain, right? I feel like that's one of the things he's asked me to fast as well as fasting entire meals. Um, and I just believe that sometimes, man, when it comes to social media, um, it just creates noise in our mind. And when you have noise in your mind, it's difficult to hear the voice of God, amen? So that's something that I'd invite you to, to um, uh, jump on with me as well. But sign up for that reading plan, because here's what's cool with that reading plan. If you sign up through our link on the app, um, we read it together. And at the end, you can leave comments for discussion. Last year, um, a decent portion of you did it. I'd say like 12 to 16 in that range uh, were involved. And there were some really neat things that came out of the discussion um, at the end of each day. And so please sign up for that. My prayer, anytime we fast and pray, God does something in the heart of the individual. But the reason why I do this, um, and it coincides with this next series, is I believe that God wants to do a work in our church and a reshaping that's gonna take place as a result of us setting aside everything and seeking him. I shared this, and I'll share it real briefly. I, I'll just tell you right now, I have no idea how long this message is gonna be. I hope you'll still love me, right? But this is one of those things where I just kept doing research, and then it made me even more curious. So I did more research, right? And right now, my notes are like one of those abstract art paintings, right? And so I don't know how this is gonna go. So, you know, I'll just, I'll say what the old school, like Pentecostal evangelists say, like the more you say amen, the faster I'll preach, right? I'm gonna go with that today, okay? But we're gonna take some time looking at the first century church. Somebody say, ooh, the first century church. Now here's what's so fascinating about the first century church. The first century church was birthed out of a highly religious culture full of hypocritical spiritual leaders that Jesus routinely called out, but then under the oppressive, very pagan Roman rule. It was a dark time in history. And so what you had is God's chosen people, the Jews, the Israelites, um, constantly uh, bore the weight of the Old Testament law, knowing they'd never measure up. And then they had these Religious leaders that just reminded them of how far off they were. That's, what they, that's basically what the religious leaders, the Pharisees, I think sometimes felt like their job was. Be like, nope, you goofed up here, you goofed up there, you goofed up there. And uh, in the meanwhile, they're uh, covering up their own hypocrisy, right? And Jesus pointed a lot of that out. And so they're filling this distance between them and God. And then you have this Roman government that is just so pagan uh, that you can read like the book of Corinthians, the, the letter to the Corinthians, and see some of the uh, pagan worship that was actually being intermingled with church. Just crazy, like where just sexual acts and things like that were incorporated with worship. Can you, can you even imagine just how twisted that is? So this is the dark time, and yet it is in this time when uh, the percentage of Christians at the inception of the church was very, very tiny. And yet what we're gonna read here in the passage today is about how God created such a compelling community within this church that they grew every single day. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I believe today we live in a dark time. I believe today that when we look around, we see a level of perversion and corruption like we haven't seen in a very long time. I believe today we are in the thick of a very deep spiritual battle, an attack against our children where um, the enemy is preying on their vulnerability. I believe when you look at the family construct, we have an enemy that is ripping families apart, confusing roles and identities, and uh, telling women they don't need men, and doing all these things to just divide and separate because the enemy knows that um, at, the, at the root of the family is the strength of the church. That's what I believe. And so I think it's prudent for us to look at some of the characteristics of the early church so that we can determine how far perhaps we've strayed. I want to talk to you this morning about table culture. And this series is entitled The Table. And you might think it's just a series about this is why we sit at tables and pat ourselves on the back. I don't see anybody else doing this. Not at all. Not only, though, did the first century church gather around tables, which they did, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but they embodied a table culture. They embodied a table culture. But if I were to describe uh, the culture of the modern American church today, I think I'd have to describe it more of a vertical table. And here's what I mean by that. See, normally you gather around a table, right? You share a meal together. But in the modern day church, it looks a little bit more like this. All of the sustenance is coming from the platform down to the people sitting in the rows. And it's, it's like we have this tilted table and the pastor goes whoosh, 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 and he's just sliding food down the table and hoping something sticks, hoping something makes a difference. And of course, this would be a very messy situation. And many people, as soon as the final amen is said, they get up and they leave before the mess is cleaned up. Maybe I'm talking metaphorically and literally on some different levels, right? And they are in and out. They're back to their routine. And through the rest of the week, they're feasting on everything else but God. Then they come to church already full of junk to basically let their souls starve to death at the seat of the Lord's table. I believe that's something that God wants to change in the culture of his church. So I have been talking to a friend of mine who is introduced me to uh, artificial intelligence, right? So I say that and some of you are like, <gasps> you freaked out, right? And you should be, you should be, because it is capable of doing some very crazy things, but it's also capable of doing some pretty interesting and unique things. And so what I just described to you, I described to an AI assistant online, and I asked him to draw a picture that embodies the state of the American church, and this is what it came up with. Is that bizarre and creepy and grotesque? So I almost debated, maybe I shouldn't show that to them because it's, it's got like this disturbing nature to it. But I think that's kind of the point. I think that the obnoxiousness and the, the disturbing nature of this is something that I hope to get our attention to show that when we take a really close look at Acts chapter two, 
and we see how far we have strayed, it is a little bit disturbing. It's a little bit grotesque. Now let's go ahead and take it down so no one has nightmares. But the first characteristic of a table is pretty basic, right? It's horizontal so that it can serve the needs of a family coming together to share a meal, right? And so it wouldn't make sense to have a vertical table and try to sit there and serve one another a meal. But see, from the very beginning, the church was never intended to be about a building or any type of seating arrangement, but instead it was to be a powerful community of believers. A building was never the focus in part because there wasn't one. Did you know that? That when they first gathered together, and we'll read about it in a second, but Acts says that they gathered together daily at the temple, which most likely in the temple courts, and then regularly in people's homes as they shared meals. Uh, Part of that was um, also because it was, uh, a lot of times it was a secret meeting. And so sometimes your environment uh, helps shape and determine what you do. Okay, you guys tracking with me? In fact, the first church basilica was not even built until AD 324 by Emperor Constantine. And so there's this whole story, maybe you've heard it before, about Constantine, the emperor. He um, was in battle and he had this like vision and he saw like the name of Christ and basically he was like, I need to convert and and then Christ is gonna help me with all of my conquests and things like that. And so he converted. He made Christianity this state religion and he built a building to house all of the believers, which is great. A lot of advancements came from that, but here's what's interesting, that this original basilica was designed after secular basilicas that were used for public meetings to elect officials and propose legislation. And so what you'd have is just this big, open uh, basilica with this huge uh, walkway for people to gather, standing room only, and then there was a platform and a throne so that someone could preside over the meeting. And this is what the first church building was modeled after. Check this out. Winston Churchill once said, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. So knowing that the first church building was designed after this type of building, it makes you wonder how these third century buildings could have shaped the way that we gather, the way that we worship, the way that we structure our time together, and what we focus on when we gather. Now, 1,700 years later, we continue to sit in rows facing a stage with a podium or a table so that we can all place our attention on one person giving a teaching and a team of musicians who try to encourage participation but constantly find it difficult to engage everyone. And in the process, they're fighting the temptation to become entertainers rather than worship leaders because that's what gets the people excited. As you saw demonstrated this morning, though, this is the same team, pretty much, give or take a few people that we have every single week. Same songs that we've sung on a regular basis. But as we gather together and everybody came with the intention of, I've got something to bring. I've got something to offer. I'm going to lift up my voice. It was a completely different focus, which in turn brought a completely different experience. 
Perhaps part of what makes it difficult to fight this whole entertainment culture is that the modern church setting often mirrors those of a theater or a concert venue. Now listen, there's some good things, I think, that come from the way that we've done church. We've certainly made advancements But is it possible that over the course of nearly 1,700 years that the design of our buildings has contributed to the church drifting slowly from deeply engaged participants to disengaged spectators? So in some ways, like I said, we've, we've enhanced the church gathering, but I fear that when the church left behind the table, it also left behind a powerful culture that the table helped create and shape. The architecture and the seating arrangement of a building has a great influence on the focus of the gathering. So let's talk about the table for a second. Why did the early church gather around tables? Well, like I said before, mostly because there were often secret meetings, right? If they, they knew if they caused too much of a disturbance, it could be shut down, they could be arrested depending on where they were and what type of persecution was going on in that area. But also and because those were the only places they had to worship. You gotta start somewhere, right? Um, How many of you know a church plant that started in a pastor's living room, right? Sometimes that's just the most natural place to start. But the byproduct, I believe, of the table setting was an extremely compelling community. You know what's really frustrating? So I was telling my kids, me and my kids, we listen to Adventures in Odyssey, all the time. Anybody know about Adventures in Odyssey? Focus on the family. It's been happening since the 80s and it's still running strong. There's 79 albums now and I am a member, so I get to listen continually all I want um, at one low price. Um, that's not payola. They're not, I'm not sponsored, sponsored by them or anything, right? But one of the things I love about Adventures in Odyssey is they have this thing called the Imagination Station. And so in the imagination stand, it's like this virtual reality that is so real that young people can step into it and they can travel back to the time Jesus walked the earth. They can travel back to the time David faced Goliath and it's like they were actually there. And as I started researching the early church, I found out that very little is known and I wish I could just step into the imagination station because I am overwhelmed with curiosity right now and a hunger to learn more and more about the early church. But there are a few things that are known and I wanna share those with you today. Anybody interested in this? You're bored already. Okay, awesome. So one of the things is they would gather around tables, which we know, which... Not like this, but this is the closest thing we have at this church. See how this one's a little bit shorter? It's because it was made for children, right? They used to use this at Sage Academy before Scholars was here. So they were a little shorter. And so uh, tables in those times were a lot closer to the floor because they would sit on the floor, usually on like a cushion or some sort of couch, and they would kind of recline at the table and kind of eat like that, right? Somebody take a picture. This is going on the church calendar, <laughs> Right? But not only that, I didn't want to use this many tables, so use your imagination. They would put them in the shape of a U, okay? And you'd have both sides, uh, both sides lined out, and you'd have this position of the U so that if someone wanted to, let's do it this way, right? If someone wanted to address the group, they could stand right here and speak to the entire table. But the attention's not all on one person. They're looking straight across from people eye to eye. And so this was the setting of 
the early church. And so in this setting, and we talk about this all the time here, which is part of the reason why we switched to tables, is the mentality would match the meeting place. So they came knowing that they were there to both feed and be fed. So they literally shared a meal every time they gathered. And we look at our culture today and we're like, that's impossible. That sounds expensive. That's too much work, you know? And I'm not making an announcement today that we're gonna eat a meal every Sunday because I still haven't figured that out. Um, but here's something that William Barclay, a Scottish uh, commentator said about the early church. He says, the really notable thing about an early church service must have been that almost everyone came feeling that he had both the privilege and obligation of contributing something to it. And yet we sit here today and I believe that we've gone to such great lengths to make church as comfortable and as uh, seamless and convenient as we possibly can for the seeker. And there's nothing wrong with doing whatever you can to try to reach someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but sometimes we can go a little far and we become a little out of balance, okay? Are you guys with me? And so the result of this table culture in the early church was a community so compelling that the church grew on a daily basis. So before we dig into scripture, what I want to do is at our tables, we're going to have a discussion. The question is this, what motivates you to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and come to church? And the follow-up to that is, what qualities do we have here at this church that have the potential of compelling those from the outside, from outside the church to come in, okay? All right. Really good discussion at our table. How was the talk at your guys' table? Excellent. All right. I love it. I love it. So this is what really, I think, just has me so passionate about this and what breaks my heart right now is if you read the scriptures and you read the gospels and you listen to what Jesus taught, what I gather is that the church is God's sole plan for the spread of the gospel. And yet I think today in many ways we're living as if it depends on someone else. See, the early church was radical. It was devoted. Uh, it endured persecution. It relentlessly spread the gospel. And it was young and probably at times foolish. And if you read some of the epistles of Paul, there was some crazy stuff going on. But one thing is for sure. One thing that there's very little doubt about is its sense of purpose and its passion for Jesus and for the gospel. And here's the deal. As far off as we may have gotten, Christ still loves his church. And God is still moving in us and through us in mighty and powerful ways. And so this isn't a, wow, we stink type of message. But what it is as I believe God wants to awaken a sleeping giant. So we got to understand that when we look at the weight of the cross, the significance of the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we read scriptures that say, if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He'll quicken your mortal body. He'll renew your strength. What's that saying is you will have all you need and more 
to do everything that, is, that God has called you to do. So why are we making excuses? Why is the church not fully living this out? This image came to me in prayer, and it was this image of this massive forest fire outside. And the church exists in this fireproof uh, building, and they have this uh, big fire hydrant outside of their church with this very long hose, and it comes out with so much power and pressure. But instead, that church takes that fire hydrant and they bring it inside and they spray it up in the air and everybody dances around and says, I'm getting wet, I'm getting wet, right? Then, every once in a while, they travel outside and they come close to that forest fire and they spit on it. And that's their contribution to a world that's burning. Church, if your evangelism, if, if you living out your life as a witness is limited to what the church puts on a calendar, then you're approaching a world that's burning and you're offering it your saliva. When you have the spirit of the living God that was meant to come gushing out of you everywhere you go, Another image that I got, God was just speaking to me in images this week, was the picture of a dam. You can say that kind of dam in church. Um, and the dam is releasing some water. You ever see that before? Because if it builds up too much, it becomes dangerous, right? It's a potential hazard. So they'll turn this valve, and that water comes out with such great pressure, right? And yet... It's coming out with great pressure because it's restricted. And I think what we do sometimes as a church is we limit to say God can only move on a Sunday morning if there's enough people here, if the music sounds just right, and if we have a very charismatic speaker preaching. If we get enough people gathered into a room, jumping up and down and shouting loud enough, then revival's gonna hit and it's gonna sweep across the room. And what we're doing is we're taking the Holy Spirit and we're bottlenecking his outflow. So that inside, we might experience lots of cool things, but the world outside is still dry and thirsty. And God says, I just want to release the dam. My church has been dammed up and I want to release it so it can be everything that it was created to be so that life can spill out into this community. But perhaps we've allowed ourselves to be shaped by the comfortable, the convenient, the non-threatening, the entertaining elements of the church building. So it doesn't all rise and fall with architecture or seating arrangements, <laughs> but it kind of gives us some insight into where we are. A beautiful building full of really nice people is not gonna change the world. And neither will a church full of nice, happy people who sit around round tables. That's not gonna change the world either. Here at the fountain, we want to do more than just sit at tables, but we want to embody a table culture. And so we're gonna spend the next few weeks discussing the characteristics of that table culture. Ready? So I did what I often do when I'm really passionate about a series. Spent way too much time in the introduction. So here we gotta do, we're gonna go rapid fire through 
some of the characteristics of the first century church. And here's what I want to talk about. The main focus of this is that we need to become horizontal like the table. We need to become horizontal. This means that we become more and more others and outside focused. So check this out. John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so what Jesus said there is that the way that we do life is our most, most powerful witness. So that doesn't excuse us from speaking. That doesn't excuse us from sharing the gospel. But he's saying that what will put weight behind those words is what our community looks like. So if that's the case, then why do we put so much emphasis on the personality of the pastor, the talent of the musicians, the style and the upkeep of the building when all the while we're not putting emphasis on the actual community that takes place inside the building? Horizontal means it's not about me or about you, but about others. So let's take a closer look at this compelling culture, will you? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and we can read this together. It says in verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Did you just catch that? They had church like every day. <laughs> That's crazy. You guys would die. <laughs> They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity because not just that we share, but how we share matters, right? All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. If people are not getting saved on a regular basis, perhaps we're not functioning the way God has designed us to function. And again, you could say, well, it's the culture we're in, Joe. It's becoming more and more godless. People are hardened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But can we compare America today to the first century church in Israel and the surrounding areas? I'd say we'd see a lot of similarities. And, and let's remember this, that Jesus said, I think I said this earlier in the service, didn't I? That he said, a pray to the Lord, maybe I said it in prayer, a pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers because he says the workers are few, but the harvest is what? Yeah, the harvest is ripe. The harvest is plenty. And, and so, but our approach is that the harvest is very few and there's plenty of workers. And I say that because we act like mm, somebody else will do that. Or we'll say to ourselves, they're not gonna be open to hear this. Nobody wants to be preached at, right? All the excuses that we make up. So, verse 42, it says, The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing, and meals, and prayer. 
Fellowship in verse 2 is defined as what is shared in common as the basis of fellowship. So like partnership and community. It describes a relationship of contribution, right? We come together, I do this, you do that, I help, you help type of situation. A horizontal focus um, is fostered by a focus on Jesus. So this doesn't mean that like horizontal focus is, it's all about the relationships and it's not about God, right? Because what happens is when we focus on Jesus, we learn how much emphasis he put on how we love one another. So there's three characteristics of a horizontal church I want to give you this morning. The number one is this. The first century church had the characteristic of servanthood. Somebody say servanthood. Okay, so there's a great example of this. We see this kind of happening in Acts chapter 2, what we just read. But take a look at John chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 4. And so this is the setting of this as Jesus is sitting down having a meal at a table, hey, right, with his disciples. And he knows, and this passage actually opens up by saying Jesus knew. He knew what was about to happen. He knew he was about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He knew he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to be unjustly tried. He knew he was going to be mocked, beaten, hung on a cross, and die for the sins of the world. He knew all these things. He knew that he was having his last meal with his disciples. And so what would he do? What would be the first action he would take? What would be the first words that he would share? Well, you might find it surprising, but this is what it says in uh, chapter 13, verse 4. It says, so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. So for Jesus, even with this knowledge of about what was going to take place, the table wasn't just a place to eat, but the table was a place to serve. It goes on to say, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. This was the most powerful and influential thing Jesus could have done in this moment. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who already humbled himself to put on flesh so that he could walk among us, humbled himself to the position of a servant. How many of you know that servant leadership is attention grabbing and surprising? You must bet that the disciples were staring with their mouth open when this took place in total shock. When you come to the table with the attitude that you have an opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and service, that garners the attention of those who are lost and searching. So Peter is, is freaked out by this, right? He's offended. He's like, no. In verse 8, Peter protested, you will never Wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. So, of course, Peter changes his tune real quick, right? But what does that mean? When Jesus says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me, what is he saying there? Is this just some sort of religious practice that we need to add to our fundamental truths, right, so that we can wash each other's feet regularly? He's saying this because he's saying, unless you step into this type of service for one another... You can have no part of me because you've missed it. This is what I came here to model. Unless you let me do this, you won't understand that this is exactly what I'm requiring of you. See, Peter was still stuck in some old reasoning and some human way of thinking. 
he, he was feeling in that moment, and rightfully so, I think we can understand this, he was not worthy for his feet to be washed by Jesus, which was true, but that was kind of the point. See, Peter's reasoning is similar to ours today. It measures us against others to determine what we will do or what we deserve or what they deserve, to determine whether we act or not, to determine whether we show mercy or not. But with this one act, Jesus demolished two strongholds, shame and entitlement in this one act. Shame and entitlement. I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. Broken right there. Or I would never do such a thing. Well, if Jesus did it, who am I to say that it's beneath me? And so later on in the story, in verse 14, Jesus specifically says to them, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Gross. But I think his deeper point, right, was that we should be willing to serve one another even when it stinks. <laughs> Seriously, though, even when it's messy, even when it's hard, <laughs> Sheila really liked that. <laughs> so listen to this. He says, I have given you an example to follow. He didn't say, I've taught you a lesson. He said, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. Turn to your neighbor and say, do as Jesus has done. Jesus did not come to simply educate us, but he came to demonstrate what he expects you to do and who he expects you to be. You know, something interesting about following is you can't follow unless you follow. Write that down. That's profound, right? You can't follow unless you actually follow. You don't follow by saying, I agree with that. You don't follow by saying, amen. You don't follow by leaving church and saying, man, that was a good message. God messed me up today. That's my favorite, right? Like, God messed me up today. What they really mean is like, I feel like crap, so I'm gonna try to forget about this so I feel better coming back to church next week, right? He messed me up. I'm not gonna do anything about it, but I feel bad. <laughs> and then finally in verse 17, he says, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Listen to this, church. Blessing follows obedience. Not simply as a reward for your faithfulness, because that is part of it, but it's also a natural byproduct of right choices, right? I think it's David in the Psalms that says that his law is good. It's perfect, it's beneficial. And so everything that he's challenging us to do, even when it involves self-denial, is for blessing, for our good. Man, I'm taking a long time. I love you guys, you're so patient. You're hungry for the word. You're like, don't stop, pastor, right? So one of those natural byproducts is deeper, more life-giving more life relationships. And they're often expressed through generosity. And that's the second characteristic of the first church right here that we're gonna talk about, generosity. Let's go back to Acts chapter two and look at verse 44. In verse 44, it says, all the believers were together and they shared everything. Somebody say, sharing is caring. 
and really, if you think about it, sharing is the baseline of relationship. Um, you're not in relationship until you're sharing things, right? You're sharing conversation, you're sharing encouragement, you're sharing a meal even, um, you're sharing favors for one another. That's relationship, right? And you can't be in a relationship if one person's always taking, right? That's what we call a toxic relationship, right? It's very toxic. And then it says in verse 45, they sold their property and possessions and shared their money. That's crazy. <laughs> Can we just be real and say, that's crazy. Some of you are like, I would never do that. Like, do I have to do that? And you're like the rich young ruler. He's like, he's like, what else do I lack? I've kept all these laws for my whole life. And God's like, there's one thing you still lack. Go and sell everything and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he's like, dang, you know, maybe hell's not that hot, actually. Uh, he walks away discouraged, right? Says, because he owned many things. But it was more about his heart. And this is what we see here. We see a different heart in the early church. Um, this doesn't mean that they went and they literally sold everything that they owned. There's really, this gives us no, nothing to believe that that was the case. That it's just like, I'm gonna sell every single possession I own. That's not really found in the language here. And if you, if you study other commentators, they don't think so either. But, but what's interesting is what it shows is they were always willing to part with their possessions as the need arose, right? So I don't think there was this big meeting. It's like, all right, everybody, Go sell everything and come back, right? I mean, God would probably want to use some of those possessions, right? Maybe they needed land so they could actually have a crop, right, to feed the church, right? So it's not like they just recklessly just went and just got rid of everything. But here's what's pretty amazing, because this is not just one act of extravagant generosity. But as you, as you look closer, the verbs in the, were in the imperfect tense. So that expresses a constant reoccurrence of an act. So basically what he's saying is that they would routinely part with their possessions and sell them to help people as needs arose. And another reason why you know it's not just one big extravagant act of generosity is because this was their reputation. You don't get a reputation by doing one grand act. You get a reputation through consistency over time. For generosity to be that widespread to where it's like, oh, this is how we recognize them. This is a part of their culture. It couldn't just be those who felt like they had the gift of generosity. You know, that's the spiritual gifts assessment, right? And I think sometimes we take those assessments. Generosity is not in my top five. That's why I don't give. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. See, this is one of those transcendent qualities that's also, um, let me see, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness. What's the other one before self-control? Kindness and self-control, right? You don't hear generous in there, but a lot of those words contain elements of generosity, right? And I think generosity is something that we should just collectively have. It doesn't mean that all of us um, uh, live uh, necessarily a minimalist life, right? Uh, but we're always ready to part with our possessions to help those who are in need. And so what happened as a result of this lifestyle was unity. And that's number three. Characteristic of the first century church, first century church, <laughs> is unity. Unity. They worshiped together, it says in verse 46, 
at the temple each day. I'd like to announce that we are going to have services seven days a week now. I'm just kidding. But they worship together at the temple each day. And this unity was expressed by the nature and the frequency of their gatherings. But here's the deal. How was it made possible? Because that sounds hard to do. It was made possible by a shared passion. So what's interesting is in the New Living Translation, it leaves out something. And so that's why I always cross-reference, right? Um, but if you go to the New King James Version, for example, it says that they worship together in one accord. One accord, which expresses unity. It means to be of same mind and spirit or to share the same passion. Now, this is powerful, church, because this is what makes unity possible. It didn't mean that they all acted and thought the same. It didn't mean groupthink. But what it meant is that they had one great passion in common that caused them to lay aside all sense of ownership or personal ambition or preference because there was something greater, something more worthy of their effort, something more worthy of their worship and attention. And so that drove every decision they made and it made them less selfish and more and more generous and it unified them. But how is this practiced or how is this accomplished practically? I think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, I think of Aaron with this one. Where are you at, Aaron? There he is in his camo. Perfect for the, what I'm about to say, right? Now, Aaron, you might not know this. He's a, he's a gentle, loving Christian man, but he's a killer, right? He's got the skills of an assassin. So, like, if, if anyone ever busts up here and they're like, you know, we won't, that's not, we shouldn't even joke about that, right? But this dude, he's probably packing right now. Don't tell us if you are, because some people will freak out about that, right? But this guy, he went to get his security certification. I don't know what it's called, right? And he had to take a test for shooting, right? And it was with a handgun, right? And what was your score? Out of what, 100? 99 out of 100, right? So... If there's a zombie apocalypse, let's all get behind Aaron, right? 99 out of 100, right? And so um, this guy knows something about aim. Can you be accurate if you're paying attention to what you see in your peripheral vision? Can you be accurate if you're focused in on the noise around you? Is there something, do you have to kind of quiet your mind a little bit to steady your hand? And so what he's doing is he's fixing his sights on the target. That's the only way he's going to be successful. But you and I live in a noisy world. You and I live in a world full of constant movement. You and I live in a world that is so busy that if we're not careful, we'll get distracted from the target. We'll get distracted on what really matters most. And in, in that, what happens is we take our aim that was fixed on what was important and we dangerously point it at those around us. We bring ourselves into a place where we can do a lot of damage from friendly fire. So is unity possible? I mean, how can this many people gather together and be in unity? 
It only happens when you fix your sights on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith, and your faith will be made perfect as your sights are fixed solely on him. See, if all of you had a gun, for some of you that are upset but I'm talking about guns, if all of you had a super soaker, right? And you aimed at a target up here, chances are no one's gonna be hit by it. You might not all hit the bullseye, but you're all gonna be landing in the general vicinity. That's what made the early church so unique is they were so hungry for Jesus. They were so hungry for his presence that as they pressed in, they said, I want God and nothing else. I wanna know his word. I wanna know his truth. I wanna know his presence. I wanna experience him in my life. They begin to share all things in common. This is not some utopian society. They still had problems. Holy cow, read, um, what is it, Acts chapter five, if you wanna be up all night and read about um, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Woo, it's hard. That's a, that's a theological one to wrestle with right there. That's crazy, right? It wasn't perfect. But can you imagine the level of unity the church must have enjoyed if it got written about and recorded in history? It's attainable if we'll just hunger for God. And so go back to verse 42 real quick. Can we put verse 42 on the screen? It's hard to just bring that on them in the last second. There we go, oh, one more back, there we go. All the believers devoted. Somebody say devoted. I, when, I, when I hear devoted, I think of steadied, right? You have to be very focused to be devoted. Themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, um, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. So whenever we have a laser focus and we are devoted toward the teaching that is found in scriptures, we're drawn together in unity. When we are devoted uh, to fellowship, to fostering healthy relationships, we are drawn together in unity. When we are devoted to sharing in meals, meaning let's take the next step of relationship. Let's not just gather on Sundays, but let's go to our life groups throughout the week consistently. We draw together in unity and when we're devoted to prayer, and we say, not only am I gonna sign up for we pray all day every single month, but whenever there's a prayer event here, I'm gonna show up to it because guess what? It's not about numbers, but there's something that's gonna happen and there's something that's gonna break loose in this place when on a Wednesday night, it's seven o'clock, instead of having the 20 faithful people, which is awesome, but the rest of us show up hungry for God, crying out to him, God is gonna break something loose in this church he's gonna bring revival to this house and we'll be drawn together in unity and that giant will finally be unleashed that dam will burst open and the river of God and the presence of God is gonna flow through this community and people are gonna get saved people are gonna get healed people are gonna get delivered it has nothing to do with the pastor it has nothing to do with how loud he shouts. It has nothing to do with how beautiful Joseph's voice is, and it is beautiful. It has nothing to do with how skillful Jacob plays the guitar. 
But the giant gets awakened within when the people sitting around the table say, I refuse to watch the world around me burn. And I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna live for him. I'm gonna make him my greatest desire. I'm gonna devote myself to his teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You guys hold the keys to revival. And when more of you come to the table, metaphorically, man, God's gonna eat, unleash something on this place. So finally in verse 46, it says, they met in homes and shared their meals with great joy. I just wanna quickly end with this. Jesus often broke bread with his disciples. And there was a lot of relational and spiritual growth that took place around that table. But there's two levels of intimacy that, uh, or there's a level of intimacy that doesn't kick in until we kind of reach that level where we're sharing meals together. But there's two levels of fellowship that are listed here, the large group gathering and the small group gathering. Anybody hear what I'm getting at? It's important when we gather together on a Sunday morning, but if you wanna go to the next level in your relationship with Jesus, you'll plug into community and a life group. If you want our church to reach the next level to where there's a compelling community here that people on the outside say, say, I see how you treat one another and I've never witnessed it anywhere else. I see how when I work with you that you're not like the other employees. I see how you treat people with respect even when they don't deserve it. I see the patience and how you handle customer service. I see the integrity when you're behind closed doors and you could get away with something, but you say, no, I'm gonna do it the right way. I'm not gonna take shortcuts. That comes from a tight-knit community making Jesus their greatest passion. So I don't know what you're doing with your life, but you need to be in a group. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna share a meal at the table today. Not much of a meal, but what we do is a representation of what Jesus did. And in fact, his last meal, as he gathered with his disciples, we read about him washing their feet, but he took a cup of wine and he said, this, this cup, is my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And they all drank of it together. And then he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body that was broken for you. And at that table, something very special and powerful happened. At that table, the creator of the universe through his son proposed marriage to his church. And when the disciples took of that cup and they drank of it, they accepted the proposal. They didn't just come to the table, but they joined a family. A family that is described by Jesus of being so powerful that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So as we partake in communion today, that's what we're saying yes to. We're saying, I am no longer my own, but I'm stepping into the next level of what God has for me.
So I'd like to, uh, first of all, invite you guys to stand. And before we get the elements, I just wanna say this, that if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus that I'm screaming about, but you say, you know what, I believe. I believe what's written in this book. I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sins and I need to repent and turn from my sins and give my life to him. I'm trusting in Christ for my salvation today. If that's you, we're not gonna do it right here and right now. What I want you to do is I want you to talk to your table leader. They've got a little badge on. Just say, you know what? I believe. And I wanna step into a relationship with Jesus. They're gonna pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then table host, once you've checked with everyone to, make sh to see if they need prayer for salvation, you're gonna lead your tables in communion, okay? So now as you go and get your elements, the team is gonna play a song called the table, which really just kind of captures the heart behind this series, okay? So Father, right now in Jesus' name, as we get out of our seats and we go and get our elements from the tables on the sides, open our hearts as we say yes to you in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead, there's tables this way, tables that way. You'll find two cups together. Bring them back to your table.